friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for joining us again this week. Thank you for coming back week after week to be part of the conversation. I hope that we give you good content for your own conversations at home and with your family and your friends. This week, we have Bishop Paprocki of the Diocese of Springfield, Illinois. We're going to be talking to him about the National Eucharistic Congress. And you're going to want to listen to this because Bishop Paprocki speaks very beautifully and passionately about the real presence of Christ in the sacrament what it means to present ourselves for communion, about Eucharistic coherence in these days of sad confusion and sort of generalized misinformation about the Eucharist and what it brings to our lives and how Jesus is really present. These are important words and important concepts to understand. But first, my TCA colleagues Ashley McGuire and Lee Sneed are going to be joining me as we welcome Fox News host Shannon Bream to discuss her new book. Shannon Bream is not only a journalist and attorney and host on Fox News Sunday, a very busy woman. <laughs> She's also a very a very popular writer of books about the Bible. And she has a book called The Women of the Bible Speak that was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. So she's definitely doing something right. And her new book is called The Love Stories of the Bible Speak. 13 Biblical Lessons on Romance, Friendship, and Faith. I happen to have an advanced copy and it's really beautiful and has wonderful insights about exactly that, romance, friendship, and faith that we can glean from the, the beautiful collection of stories and truths that is the Bible. Welcome to the show, Shannon. Thank you so much for having me. Shannon, um, we're very happy and proud that you're on with us. Um, you're not just an important journalist who's done amazing work for so long. You're also you're also a wonderful example of someone who can do that and also be a a, a very a beautiful living witness of of Christian of Christian values and Christian life, especially in your work as in your books. One of which I mentioned in the intro was in the New York Times bestselling list, and it's um, it's it's a perennial favorite of many people I know. Um, the women of the Bible speak. You've been giving a new look and a new a new flurry of interest onto the Bible stories, which in a way are part of our are part of our DNA as Christians. Um, but in another way, we get used to the stories and we forget um, how beautiful they are and how much they have to say to us. So thank you for all your work and how. What is it about uh, these the Bible stories in general that make you that what what makes you think that the that people need to know more about the Bible? I think that these stories are all there for a reason. As people of faith, we believe they were important, that God included them. But the fact is they really translate to today, whether it's financial trouble or physical problems or marital problems or um, infertility or widowhood. I mean, all of the things that we walk through uh, are things that God is very aware of. And we see in the Bible how he's walked other people through these really tough times. We see their heartfelt prayers and begging God for an answer and for help. And we often see the way that he's moving, even if it didn't formalize for people to see it until generations later. Um, he was always working. So I love just taking these stories and, and to maybe somebody who would be a little intimidated by trying to pick up the Bible and read through the Old Testament or New Testament 
and say, hey, these are stories that are real life connections to what you're walking through today. God was present in those stories and he's present in your life now, today. You know, Shannon, I read, this is Lee, and I read your first book last year and I really liked exactly what you're talking about, these human experiences, these imperfect people. You know, it's the reminder that I need every single day that, you know, right now you're good enough. You're worthy of God's love. Not that you shouldn't try Mm -hmm. to be better, but, you know, that sort of human experience. (laughs) Another thing I really liked about your book was that I didn't know it was going to be repeated in the other subsequent books that that you put the pairs together in each chapter. Um, Mm -hmm. Was that the idea for the books? Was it a series when you first came up with it or was it just the first book? and then that spawned the other ideas? Yeah, Lee, that's exactly what happened. Um, Fox came to me a few years ago and said, we know your faith is really important. We're thinking about um, putting together a book that would really speak to women and to faith issues. Would you be interested? And I said, absolutely. I was so thrilled for the opportunity. So we put together this first book, um, Women of the Bible Speak, and you know, thought about which women we'd want to include. There's so many stories, of course, people know about um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her beloved and divine role. Um, but there are a lot of other women they don't know about, like Deborah, um, maybe less familiar with Esther, and some of the other stories we thought, okay, let's put these together. Then we started pairing them. And so we had Queen Esther that we wanted to pair. And I really fought to include Rahab, who, you know, some scholars believe she was an innkeeper. Others think uh, it would be on that, that she may have been a prostitute in her time. But she was this bold, faithful woman who stepped up when God's people needed her. And she was critical um, in the story of the development of, you know, the people, God's people. So I said, I want to pair Queen Esther and this prostitute to show people that it doesn't matter what your life is, where you've come from, where you start, where you finish, mistakes. We've all made mistakes and we all have regrets. It doesn't matter. God can work through every single kind of story. And I thought pairing those two women, um, it was an important contrast to say, Every life is valuable to God and every life is one that he can use. Yeah, I love that. Shannon, this is Ashley. In your book, you know, I think there's this sense that marriage today is an increasingly outdated concept. And I think especially there's this idea that Christian marriage is sort of repressive, um, Mm -hmm. you know, based on these sort of outdated ideas of a misunderstanding of one particular verse in general. But in your book, you write that marriage as set forth by God in Genesis calls for mutual surrender and radical union. And I loved the way you kind of presented a sort of egalitarian nature about some of these um, old marriages. You know, do you, do you see these, these ancient marriages as sort of almost like progressive uh, visions for, for today's youth who are sort of disenchanted about marriage? Yeah, I do hope that people will maybe take another look, have conversations with each other about what marriage was intended to be in this beautiful thing that God created for us. Um, we see that in the story of Adam and Eve. We see desire and romantic love in Song of Solomon, which I think everybody's intimidated to kind of try to study and write about that in particular. That was probably the toughest chapter in this latest book, um, Love Stories of the Bible. But I think what we see is God never meant um, one spouse to be subjugated to the other or to be dominated by the other. I mean, when you really look at the original Hebrew language and the conversation about Adam and Eve, they're very much partners. And there are people who were to work together to accomplish God's purposes in his kingdom. They were to comfort each other, to rally for and respect each other and all these beautiful things. Um, listen, I've been married 27 years and my husband and I always say, we are far from perfect, but we're perfect for each other. We believe that God put us together and um, we can be the helper when one is flagging and one is walking through a dark place 
place and for trouble, what a beautiful picture to have a helper with you and a helpmate and somebody who is right beside you in it. Again, no one lower than the other or lording over the other, but really partners together in life to tackle all of the things that will come at you. And um, marriage is a beautiful thing. It is not a super easy thing all the time, but I think we know that about life, that the things that um, we care about and that are really valuable to us take vulnerability. They take work. They take commitment. And it takes us not being selfish, too. I think marriage calls on us. If we're going to treat each other the way Christ treats the church or God views us, that means sacrificial love, looking for the betterment of the other person. And I think that's a really beautiful relationship to be in. We're talking to Shannon Bream, New York Times bestselling author, whose new book called Love Stories of the Bible Speak, 13 Biblical Lessons on Romance. Friendship and Faith is coming out next week. We're lucky enough to have uh, advanced copies of, of your beautiful book, Shannon. And the first chapter, you already mentioned it, is the, um, the chapter on the Songs of Solomon. And it's it's rather, it's so compelling. <laughs> <laughs> I've read the Songs of Solomon many times, and I thought I understood its depth and its beauty and its its fabulous, full-throated glorification of, of the love, the of the love between a man and his wife, or, or in, in the beginning between a man who aspires you know, to take this beautiful wife and, and the woman who who embraces him back, right? With all the fullness mm-hmm. of her of her nature and of her femininity. Um, I love the way that you talk about the songs of Solomon. And one of the things that that you point out that I I know that I had missed or I had misunderstood its full implication. So this is from the Songs of Solomon. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. You explain that very beautifully in the book, but why don't you tell our listeners what that means? Yeah, I think that, and gosh, there are so many scholars who weigh in on so many details of this book, but you really see this longing for these two who want to be together. Um, We know that desire and marriage and romance and sex, all of that God has created, and He did that with us in mind. So this idea of not awakening um, these passions and these lusts until the time that you can actually be together, I think is, people are going to say, old-fashioned idea, but I do think... Um, God wants us to experience all of those things in the fullness of marriage and to never, as um, people of faith, to um, have any shame or hesitancy over that, but the timing's got to be right. Um, and so I think here we see the bride saying to the other women, like, let's not stoke this relationship and these passions and these things until we can come together. And she and the groom are both really looking forward to that. So I think, you know, people of faith, maybe we don't discuss that part of God's creation for us, but we should celebrate it. I mean, this book to me is that book, the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, is a celebration of that beautiful part of the relationship that God has created for us. You know, you talk about how you are a big crier at weddings, and I totally <laughs> identify with that. Um, there's just something about it, and it's a uh, stirs thing, especially, you know, if you're there with your own spouse, you know, it's sort of like reliving mm-hmm. your vows over again and promising that lifelong commitment. You're so excited for the happy couple. So, but, you know, like you say, it takes a lot of work and do the long haul thing, which we all want out of our marriages. Do you see, and we all use different tools and prayers and 
strategies to do that. But do you see your book fitting in there? Like, do you expect that you'll see couples reading this book together? I really hope so, because I do think it it raises beautiful nuggets out of the Bible about different relationships. Listen, the beautiful ones that worked and the disastrous ones that didn't, like Samson and Delilah, I always like to include the stories that are very flawed as well, because I think we can learn a lot from that. And even Samson and Delilah, as flawed and messed up as that relationship was, we see in the very end when Samson goes back to God and asks for his help and wants to honor him one last time, that God still is working in Samson's story and still answers that last prayer and that God had never left him. So I think through the good and the bad relationships, I think men and women will see a lot in this book. And and there's a lot there about friendships too and about community and how we can support each other in our spiritual walk through, um, whether it's a small group or Sunday school class or just a, a strong friendship. I think that can be between spouses, but also between friends too. So I do hope that men um, we'll dig into this book with their wives and see, okay, this is where we can, this is where we're getting things right. This is where we can do better. I mean, these love poems back and forth between um, the, the bride and groom and Song of Solomon, I'm like, I really got to step up my game. You know, leaving this note like, love you, have a great day. I'm thinking like, she's saying like, your arms are like bands of gold and your, you know, your eyes are like doves. I'm thinking, I, I could really work on this. Maybe I could take some points. <laughs> Shannon, you include um, probably my two personal favorite love stories in the Bible, which are Esther and Xerxes and Ruth and Boaz. But reading those chapters in your book, I thought about them in a way I hadn't thought about before, namely that, you know, in showing respect to the other, it sort of elicits sort of a mutual respect. And I'm thinking Mm -hmm. of the scene you highlight where Esther comes into the court of Xerxes and um, says something to the effect of, you know, may it please the king. And they're just so, they show so much respect for each other. And that makes him want to do what she wants. Mm-hmm. And and similarly with Ruth, where she says, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are our guardian redeemer of our family. And I think so often in our culture today, which is really sort of individualistic and self-centered, mm-hmm. there's a, a sense that showing that sort of respect and honor to the other person is, is, I don't know, almost degrading or something, but um, I guess two questions. What's your favorite story in, in the book that you highlight? And, you know, if you were to sort of extract one nugget of advice that you see from these stories that you would give to married people, people who aspire for happy marriages, what would it be? Um, I love both of the stories so much because like you say, the women are so wise in both of those stories um, in that they're acting with so much integrity. And that does, it seems, spark um, respect and kindness and affection from Uh, the men who are or will be their spouse. There's another story tucked in there that I didn't know as well until I studied for this book as well, which I think is a lot of the same principles, which is David and Abigail. So when David and Abigail meet for the first time, she's married to a guy that everybody agrees is a complete jerk. I mean, the Bible calls him some names that we don't see that referred to for anybody else, but this guy was a hothead. He was prideful. He was an arrogant jerk. And essentially um, that got him in trouble and, and his 
his entire household was facing the potential of being annihilated because of his attitude. And it's interesting to me because the servants there in their home don't go to him, the husband, Nabal, in that case. They go to Abigail, who is this wise wife of his. It's making the best of the situation. And it's like the people in the household knew they couldn't count on him, that he was rash and impulsive and prideful, but they could count on Abigail. And they went to her and made a plea to her to help protect their household and to, um, you know, stave off this rampage that was coming their way. She actually goes to David wisely, humbly, and makes this impassioned speech to him about, please forgive my husband, disregard him. He has treated you wrongly, but I'm here to make up that wrong. She's like this ambassador at a time when, you listen, most people think that the women, if they stepped out from what their husband had done, in this case, stepping out from Nabal, um, that she could have been inviting trouble, but she didn't care. She knew that to save her household, she had to go and be humble and make her case to David. So her husband, God strikes him down. I mean, he's gone at one point because of his pride, his arrogance, and his mistreatment. And David remembers her and later says to her, um, this wise woman who made such a good case and such a respectful case to me, come be my wife. And it's just one of those little stories in the Bible that doesn't get a lot of attention, but it shows you um, a woman who is willing to to step up, to be a mediator, to instead of respond rashly to an insult, she comes to be a peacemaker and she's wise. And she, you know, you wonder how many times she'd had to put out these fires that her husband had started. But she was so wise that even when he was gone, David remembered her and said, that is the kind of woman that I would want to be my wife. Shannon, in your chapter on Adam and Eve, you bring up something that every time I read the Genesis story or I hear hear it in church, I, I I always, this strikes me so strongly that Adam and Eve were parents of two sons, one of Mm -hmm. whom murdered the other. (laughs) And, you know, as the, as any parent or anybody who ever has loved anyone, the thought of someone you love murdering someone else that you love, mm-hmm. how that is such a double tragedy. Um, I'm really glad that you brought that up because it, it brings, well, why did you bring it up? And, and what do you think it does for people to, to consider Adam and Eve in this sense? I think sometimes we forget that part of their story because they really lost both their sons there. Um, not only the one who was murdered, but the one who was then exiled and sent away from them. And I can't imagine the grief that these parents would go through to know that they'd lost both of their sons in this horrific, tragic incident. But what we see is that they turn to each other for comfort and that they um, remain united in something that is extremely painful. And, you know, parents will face all kinds of different things, whether it's an illness or something as tragic as one of your children attacking the other. Um, we have to remember that Adam and Eve, yes, their life started out perfectly. You had, um, you know, the Garden of Eden. You had this wonderful life that God had prepared for them. But when that went wrong because of their own choices, they were cast into the real world that the rest of us live in. And through that still, they stayed together in their marriage and they, you know, became the mother and father to all of us, essentially. Um, But I think seeing them turn to each other for comfort and to continue to, in this marriage, continue to build a family and move forward, um, I think it humanizes us to remember and remind us um, that they went through some very, very painful things as a couple, but it bound them together rather than ripping them apart. You know, you write in the uh, in the Adam and Eve chapter two about the, you know, after 
Eve is tempted by the serpent and she immediately shares the fruit with Adam, mm-hmm. which means that the Adam was right there. Um, right. And you do a great job of pointing that out. I mean, so either what's happening and it, Eve is always the heavy in popular culture in the story, right? And one of the reasons why, you know, I think people think that there's an anti-woman bias in Christianity and all kinds of other things follow from that. But what it reminded me of, especially the way you pointed it out, was that, you know, one of your jobs as a spouse, your, probably your main job, right, is to help your spouse get into heaven. And so often mm-hmm. we sort of drag them in the other direction. Um, <laughs> it's so easy to do that because, you know, misery loves company. And so what what do you think we can learn from the fact that Adam was standing right by there? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, right. It, I That to me, when I went back and reread that story, I was like, yeah, that reminder, because it's like Adam standing right there and she hands him the fruit and he takes it too. And then he's like, oh, the woman you gave me, gave yeah, me right. the fruit as if he didn't have a choice. And I thought... I've always, I have so many questions. That'll be one of the questions I have when I get to heaven. Um, like, was he standing exactly right there during the conversation with the serpent? Like, at <laughs> one point did he walk up? I've got a lot of questions. Um, but you're right. We do have an obligation to encourage each other spiritually. And for people who think that Christian marriage is an oppressive idea, I would encourage them to read in Ephesians where men are commanded to love their wives as Christ loves the church, meaning you've got to be totally sacrificial. You've got to be about caring for her and taking care of her. She's going to be your priority. I mean, to me, that doesn't sound oppressive at all. And, um, you know, the husband answers to God. I mean, there's really no um, greater accountability than that <laughs> that kind of authority. <laughs> I mean, women are called to respect our husbands, and we're to be partners together in building the kingdom and to building a life together. Um, so to me, this call for men to sacrificially love their wives is the opposite of something that's oppressive or disrespectful. It's the exact opposite of that. So um, listen, Adam tried to blame Eve and that, you know, God obviously saw right through that. So ultimately, you know, our husbands are to guide us and to guide our families. And there's a ton of responsibility and call on them and that call to love us. Um, and they answer to God himself. So if we think they're getting things wrong, I mean, of course, who among us has not been critical, um, you know, or if we're frustrated with our spouse, we have to remember that, you know, our husband's answer to God himself, and that's a much greater authority than answering to us. Yeah, I loved what you said, too, about trying to get it right most of the time or something something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Like you just committed to not going to the ugly place, not hurling insults. Right. Um, and it just was, it was very, very inspirational. I hope lots of... Uh, married couples or some preparing to get married, people would take some mm-hmm. advice from that. Yeah. I mean, we're all imperfect and we're going to make mistakes and we're going to sin and we're going to hurt each other. Um, but I do think, um, you know, my husband and I have really tried to draw a line, even in our most heated arguments, better to walk out the door and or go punch a throw pillow <laughs> than to say things that are so um, destructive to the fabric of your hearts and of your commitment to each other and of your vows. Um, that sometimes I do think the best thing to do is walk away. It's not wrong for us to be angry. I mean, there you can sin in your anger, but there's also righteous anger. And I think, um, you know, we're all human and we're all going to have to apologize to each other. And the more that we're willing to do that and to handle our, our fights well, to learn to fight clean and to, you know, be willing to be humble and apologize to each other, that covers a lot. Shannon, you mentioned that, you know, there's there's things to be learned from the the love stories that went awry or the ones that don't necessarily have the happy endings like Samson and Delilah. What do you think is the most, you know, maybe the most misunderstood um, love story in the Bible, even by Christians or or just by Mm -hmm. modern times? 
You know, that one's tricky in that when I went back to really dive into it and study on a deep dive basis, I had forgotten that Samson was married before Delilah. And that was a disastrous marriage, too. (laughs) The crazy thing is, you go back even further, Samson and Delilah's parents were a beautiful marriage. We see a partnership where, you know, this angel comes to visit his mother and explain Um, you're going to be pregnant with this child. You're going to take a special vow. He's going to take a special vow. He'll be consecrated before God. And she goes and shares this with her husband and her husband um, immediately believes her. He doesn't question or mock her. He is clearly respectful to her. They have a good relationship. When the angel comes back, she says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Let me go get my husband because I want, you know, both of us to be in this and to hear this together. And so you can see a real partnership and respect that they had for each other. And it's in the midst of that, that Samson is born. There's a special vow over his life and his parents are very committed to it. But Samson, not necessarily. He really plays at the fringes of not really observing the full vow. He wants to go and marry someone outside of their faith and their nationality, which you know God did not want them to do because he was trying to build his people um, and, and have them worship him and not other gods. And so Samson kind of doesn't really care about that stuff. He sees this first wife he has, you know, a lustful thoughts about her. They had no conversation. So it's not like he can say, this is my soulmate. He says, you know, I like the looks of her and I want you to get her for me. He demands that of his parents. Um, that is a disastrous story that I outline in the Bible too, that was, you know, way off track. It's years later after he's actually been a judge over Israel all this time and had um, really been a man of God, that he starts to again, get away from his vows and commitments to God and chases after Delilah again, not a person that was the right fit for him. And she leads him into all of these immoral, unethical, um, you know, quandaries where he eventually ends up giving up the very thing that would protect him and ultimately his vow to God. So um, I think there's a lot to be learned there from getting off track, from getting away the vows we've, getting away from the vows that we've made to God, from not listening to the counsel of our godly parents, of not watching their godly example if they've had a good marriage for us to for us to model. I mean, Samson made a lot of wrong decisions, but like I say, in the very end of his story, if you know it, he calls on God one last time so that he can honor God, and God meets him in that and redeems the mess he's made. So he could have saved himself a lot of heartache, and hopefully we will do that through, you know, studying his story. Um, but there are lessons, I think, in the bad and the good in the Bible. Shannon, I wish we had more time to keep talking to you. I'm so impressed by your book, which I was fortunate enough to already have read. Thank I hope you. I hope that all our listeners will pick up a copy. It's called, to review, it's called The Love Stories of the Bible Speak. Yes, the book is The Love Stories of the Bible Speak. And we love to do workbooks too, because I always like a study guide. And I've had so many people come to me and say, we've done this as a group or we've done it through church. And I actually was stopped at church a couple weeks ago by a man who said his men's group decided to do it. And he said, we felt like it was a way to honor our wives and our mothers and our daughters. And I was really touched by that. Oh, well, that's wonderful. We will look out for the workbook as well. I can't think of anything more important. I want to point out to our listeners that your book, and we didn't get to this because we ran out of time, also has a whole section on loving friendships, which all, which is something so close to all our hearts, um, the importance of our, our human relationships with our friends. And you have a beautiful mm-hmm. chapter on Jesus and John. So I, I don't want anyone to miss that beautiful chapter. So mm-hmm. thank you so much, Shannon, for joining us. It was a real honor and a pleasure. Thank you. God bless all of you.
we have Bishop Paprocki of the Diocese of Springfield, Illinois. We're going to be talking to him about the National Eucharistic Congress. Welcome to the show, Your Excellency. Thank you. Good to be with you. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us, and I hope that we have uh, the occasion to, to talk about and touch upon several different things that I wanted your expertise on <laughs> for our listeners. Recently, you wrote a piece uh, in First Things called Imagining a Heretical Cardinal, which was a fabulous piece. It was about Eucharistic coherence. And right now, the, the Eucharist is, is a very important topic for all of us Catholics, and we are in the midst of a Eucharistic revival, uh, which to me is a, a wonderful a wonderful idea that I think will have tremendous spiritual benefits for all of us and, and will bring us many graces. But I wanted to know if you could give us a scholarly version of Eucharistic coherence. What, what does that mean, and how can we understand it better? Well, Eucharistic coherence is a phrase uh, that was used by the uh, bishops of Latin America when they wrote a document referred to as the Aparacita document. Aparacita is, is the name of that. And uh, it was when um, now Pope Francis was then the Archbishop of uh, Buenos Aires, then Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio, uh, and he was uh, an important architect of that Aparacita document. And there's a very uh, strong section in that document where they talk about Eucharistic coherence. And what they mean by that is uh, that there should be a coherence or a consistency between what we do uh, on Sunday when we go to Mass and um, receive Holy Communion, and then what we do the rest of the week uh, in living out our, our Christian lives. And it is incoherent and inconsistent if we say that we're good Catholics, and then we hold to teachings that are contrary to the Catholic Church, or if we act in a way that is contrary to the moral law of the Church, and then try to go to Holy Communion without being repentant for those sins, that's that's incoherent. And so that's that's been an, a, an essential part of our faith, going back to St. Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians, where he talked about those who eat the body, the body of Christ, the Holy Communion, as we call it, or drink the cup, the precious blood, that uh, they, in fact, uh, bring judgment upon themselves if they do so uh, unworthily. And uh, we call that uh, uh, the sin of sacrilege, because you're receiving Holy Communion while you're uh, not in the state of grace, and that's actually compounding the sin. And that, uh, it's, a, it's a sin in itself, the sin of sacrilege, to receive Holy Communion when you're not in the state of grace. For those who um, are conscious of, of grace sin, the teaching of the Church is that we... Uh, first have to go to uh, the sacrament of penance and uh, be reconciled uh, by confessing our sins, being sorry for our sins, and make a firm purpose of amendment not to commit those sins uh, again, and then receive absolution from the from the priest. So there's a, an important connection between uh, uh, the sacrament of reconciliation and uh, receiving Holy Communion. Well, Your Excellency, it, I know that you must know that people uh, here in the United States in general, Catholics, uh, Sunday-going Catholics that go every single Sunday, even daily Mass-going Catholics, they tend now to think about communion, about the Eucharist as a kind of medicine for their sins, um, something that will get them, will give them graces that, that they need to, to overcome their sins, but they don't, I feel like people have lost that sense of that reverence with which you approach the Eucharist and 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 the necessity to of, of being in a state of grace already before you, you you present yourself. Can one receive the graces of the Eucharist if one is not an, already in a state of grace? Well, no. If, if someone is um, 
is not in the state of grace and is, uh, you know, in fact, in the state of mortal sin, uh, then they, they don't receive the graces of the sacrament. In fact, as I said, they, they compound it. They, they commit another sin, the sin of sacrilege. So uh, th- there is a healing dimension to the Eucharist insofar as venial sin is concerned. So venial sin would be lesser sins, uh, sins that do not break our relationship with God, but they offend God. And so when we go to Holy Communion and we, you know, even at Mass, we, we say the confidier, uh, uh, at the beginning of Mass, it's not, it's not sacramental confession, but we're telling God that we're sorry for our sins, and then we receive Holy Communion. In fact, our, our venial sins are forgiven. Mortal sin is a different story. More The very word mortal comes from the word mortis, which means death. And uh, when someone has committed a mortal sin, that uh, that ruptures our relationship with God. And, um, and before then receiving Holy Communion, we have to repair that relationship uh, in the Sacrament of Reconciliation. I will use the analogy of uh, the relationship between a husband and wife, and in fact, our Lord used that analogy of, of uh, the Church uh, being a spouse, basically, uh, our Lord is the is the groom, and the Church is the bride of Christ. And uh, you know, so when a husband and wife, for example, if they're if one of them commits adultery, that relationship has to be uh, repaired before they can resume their their conjugal life, and there has to be repentance and reconciliation and a promise never to do that again. And similarly with, similarly with our Lord, we can't, we can't do something that's mortally sinful and then just act as if uh, nothing has happened. Uh, that's the problem where uh, instead of calling people to repentance, it seems that uh, some are calling for the Church to simply lessen our understanding of, of sin. So, you know, Jesus's first word in his public ministry was repent, and uh, sometimes we forget that. So that Jesus says, repent and believe in the good news. Yes, the good news is that he forgives our sins, and he calls us to be part of his kingdom, but uh, we have, first of all, we have to repent of those sins. And uh, so uh, that's the problem with the message that we're hearing even by, from some within the Church, that uh, they just don't even talk about repentance and, and suggest that, well, maybe sexual sins uh, aren't that bad, or we should just consider them to be uh, venial sins, and so you don't have to go to confession before you receive Holy Communion. And uh, that's contrary to the longstanding uh, teaching of, of the Church, that the sexual sins uh, are grave matter, they are serious sins. So, you know, someone uh, commits adultery, or, or even a, a couple that cohabits, a man and woman, uh, man or woman, or or people of the same sex who live together and have sexual activity that's contrary to the, the moral norm, and, and that's uh, that's grave matter. That's a very serious thing. People who are, are living like that or are committing other kinds of sins that they're obstinate in and that they they basically don't believe that it's a sin right or they wouldn't or they would repent they they've lost that sense of sin it it brings up a whole other level right of of being of not being ready to receive the eucharist which is something you talk about in your piece uh, the level of heresy people who really who who deny completely that that what they're doing is a sin or that they deny an, a teaching of the church which is part of the magisterium and and it's something that we have to accept and we can't be obstinately opposed to it um these the word heresy is not a word we use very much or apostate or schismatic but looking at the big picture of the catholic church right now it seems like those are terms that we have to bring back into vogue so that we can understand what it's like to live as a catholic when maybe parts of the Catholic Church might be falling into heresy. Do you agree, well, Your yes. Excellency? 
Yes, we have to we have to realize there are, there are uh, different terms that we we have to be clear about. I and mean, there's the subjective aspect of sin, and there's the objective aspect of sin. Um, and what I mean by that is a subjective is to commit a mortal sin. It not only has to be a serious matter, grave matter, but you also have to know that it's a mortal sin and you have to freely choose to do that. So um, there are some subjective factors, for example, where someone may do something that is objectively very serious, but subjectively uh, perhaps do not incur mortal sin because, for example, maybe they don't know that. I mean, we live in a time of a lot of confusion. I mean, it is a mortal sin to miss Mass on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe maybe some people just, uh, the religious education that they receive, maybe nobody ever told them that. And mm-hmm. they just think, well, if I go, you know, twice a month or on Christmas and Easter, I'm still a good Catholic. And uh, and so then they're living in, in a sense of, um, of ignorance. of, of And so they would not be subjectively culpable, but on its face, we would still say, yes, missing Mass on Sunday is a grave matter, just as adultery is a grave matter. But there are, you know, and then heresy is also a grave matter. But there, too, I would be careful with with uh, saying that if, certain, if somebody says something, it is heretical. That means it's contrary to something that, uh, uh, from divine revelation uh, and, and the defined teachings of the Church that must be accepted and believed. But there are, there are situations, perhaps, where... Uh, someone again may not be um, subjectively culpable. Mm-hmm. They may not realize what they're saying is heretical. So I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say that I can't make the determination whether or not that person is actually a heretic. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's interesting in canon law, uh, the sins of uh, apostasy, uh, heresy, and schism carry with them an automatic penalty. It's called an alate sententiae excommunication. And what that means is that the, it, it really it, it's incurred automatically because you could have a case where a person holds a heretical view and uh, or is a schismatic. That means they don't accept the authority of, of the Pope and the teacher and the teachings of the church, or you could have someone who is an apostate that totally rejects the faith, and maybe they only they know that. So you could have someone who says, "I don't believe what the Catholic Church teaches anymore," and they, but they never say that publicly, but internally in their own souls and uh, in, in their own heart, they have rejected the church. They put in a self put themselves outside the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, for someone looking at that, I, I, I or no one else can look at that person and say, "Well, you're a heretic because I don't know what what's the." internal state of their soul. But if they say something that is contrary to divine revelation of the teaching of the Church, I can say that's a heretical teaching, and you shouldn't be saying that, and this is why it's heretical, because then if you do really believe this heretical teaching, well then you've made yourself a heretic in a sense. Your Excellency, we've passed the 10-year anniversary of Pope Francis's elevation to Pope, and lately more and more there's more talk of heresy and more talk of schism, and especially as we hear things coming out of Germany and and things like that. Somehow, many people feel uh, it's been expressed to be my it's been expressed to be my many good Catholics that the that the papacy, the current papacy, has maybe opened the doors to more nefarious uh, sections of the Church of, uh, of of cardinals and and different types who mm-hmm. who want to propose things which are on their face heretical and want the entire body of the church to accept this give us your um ap- appreciation of this of of the papacy of the current papacy and how it's um, maybe laid laid us open to to more of these uh, difficult things well the um the process that uh, that Pope Francis uh, is using with the synodal process is one which encourages free expression of, of what 
what people want and what they feel uh, they need or the church needs in terms of changes or or um, various alterations in, in the practice of, of the faith. And so we have that free discussion. I've, I've heard, heard it said that Pope Francis says, well, he lets people talk, and then if they go too far, he'll tell them, well, no, we can't do that. You've gone too far. And that's, that's fine. But in the meantime, we've got a lot of people saying things, sometimes people in very prominent positions. So this um, synodal path in, in Germany, you've got a lot of people, uh, they, they published the names. I mean, this was public voting, including many bishops who were voting in favor of things that are contrary to the teachings of the church, like blessing same-sex marriages and calling for the ordination of women and uh, things that have uh, already been clearly defined uh, as definitive teachings of, of the church. And and so you have people very confused about that. Now, what Pope Francis is going to do with that, the Holy See, I mean, they've, the Holy See has already issued warnings, some of the prefects of the various dicasteries in Rome, and then recently the German bishops had a their ad limina visit with the Holy Father, and he basically told them, you know, he drew the line, said there's, there's certain things you can't do. And apparently they're defying that. So I, I, how this is going to play out, I don't know. But we saw, for example, with the Amazonian Senate uh, down in the Amazon in South America, that there were calls for many of these same kinds of things. Uh, but in the end, Pope Francis did not approve those proposals. And so, you know, I think there are things that are coming out of Germany that I, I would expect, and I would hope that Pope Francis would, would not accept any of that. Uh, in fact, would, would, would condemn what, what they're saying. But in the meantime, we have a lot of confusion because uh, you have people, as I said, in, even in the hierarchy, espousing these uh, ideas that are contrary to the teachings of the Catholic Church. One thing that brings me hope when I see all the confusion, and I, and I, and I see the confusion and I hear it from people around me and I see it in, um, in, in the media, one thing that gives me hope is the Eucharistic revival is the Eucharistic, the National Eucharistic Congress. It's been 83 years since since we had one of these. It reminds me, it, it, it brings it to, I think about my, my husband, my husband's a convert, and um, he was he was Jewish when I married him, and it's only recently that he started um, going to adoration, and he, he goes around everywhere telling people what an amazing experience that is, and how he he was told for a long time that, that it was wonderful to adore the Eucharist and to, to understand the real presence of our Lord and to, to bathe in that real presence. But it was only in the practice of it that he understood the power. So I see this Eucharistic revival, this Congress, as um, a, a great opportunity to, to return to the truths of our faith and, and to defend ourselves from these confusions and these, and these heresies, which unfortunately mill around and, and, and hurt our souls. Is that how you see also the this beautiful revival? Yes, the Eucharistic revival is a, is a wonderful opportunity for us uh, as a nation here in the United States uh, for Catholics here to really focus in on uh, what the, what the Church teaches, our understanding uh, of the Eucharist itself. You know that the Eucharist is is not just a, a symbol or reminder of the of the Last Supper. It's not a, it's not just a reenactment of. A, of a sacred meal, uh, but it's it's actually uh, the holy sacrifice of the mass, which represents what uh, what our Lord did when he he died for us on the cross on, on Calvary, and so and that and that holy communion as we receive holy communion again, we're not just receiving some blessed bread or a symbol uh, of the Last Supper. We're receiving the the true presence, the real presence of of uh, Jesus Christ uh, in the sacrament. So I think. 
it's a great opportunity for us, first of all, to renew our understanding of what the Eucharist is, and then we have some wonderful uh, events where we can come together as a church, because the church uh, is the body of Christ, and uh, we celebrate the Eucharist uh, together as a church, and so there'll be some wonderful opportunities. There's going to be the, uh, the Eucharistic procession, which is going to be bringing the uh, the Blessed Sacrament uh, from four uh, uh, corners of the United States uh, to Indianapolis, uh, uh, culminating in the National Eucharistic uh, Congress in uh, Indianapolis in July of 2024. Uh, but there'll be different legs coming from uh, up north in uh, Minnesota at the beginning of the Mississippi River, coming down to Indianapolis, and from uh, the border of Texas uh, coming north, uh, and then from uh, uh, Connecticut in the east from the shrine of uh, Father, uh, Blessed Father uh, Michael McGivney, the founder of uh, the Knights of Columbus, and then from the west uh, from San Francisco. And uh, San Francisco, from uh, which represents the various missions that were founded there by by um, uh, Father Yernipro Serra. And um, uh, so that, that leg that's coming from the west is actually going to come uh, through uh, the Midwest here. It'll be coming through uh, Missouri and then up through our diocese in Springfield uh, in Illinois and then uh, on to uh, Indianapolis. So, uh, you know, the, the, that in itself, those pilgrimages, I think, would be wonderful opportunities, a very public display of our belief in the real presence like we do on, on the Solemnity of Corpus Christi. Um, and then this big Eucharistic Congress that will be in uh July of 2024 in Indianapolis at the Lucas Oil uh, Stadium and um, seats about 80,000 people. So we're going to have a, I'm sure we'll have a full house for that, a big celebration. And uh, in the meantime, we're going to have uh, our own Eucharistic Congress here in the Diocese of Springfield in Illinois. Uh, we're celebrating a Eucharistic year right now, um, and we will have a our Diocesan Eucharistic Congress on October 28th, and that will be held here in Springfield at the Bank of Springfield uh, Convention Center, which seats about uh, between seven and 8,000. And uh, so that'll, that's a Saturday. I've asked my priest not to schedule any weddings or uh, Saturday evening masses, but uh, invite and encourage people to come together so that we can make this a big uh, diocese celebration on October 28th, 2023. Well, I hope that every every listener is now going to check with their own archdiocese and 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 find out how we're celebrating each of us the Eucharistic revival, and and it's a wonderful image that you paint of of our Lord advancing from all four corners of the United States to meet in Indianapolis. That's very beautiful, and and I feel that that real presence and our Lord in, in actual, the flesh, in a sense, can solve so many of our problems that we have so many of, right? And how wonderful that we're all participating in that. So thank you so much, Your Excellency, for spending the time with us and, and giving us this wonderful view of, of Eucharistic coherence and, and how it's going to solve all our problems. <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. God bless you. And uh and I hope that uh, you and all the listeners have really can grow in appreciation for the Eucharist during this Eucharistic uh, revival. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. 
This is Father Roger Landry, and it's good to be back with you at the end of the program to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us in the fifth Sunday of Lent. It's a very poignant and relevant dialogue, one that's meant to have just as big an impact in our life as the miracle Jesus worked for Lazarus had in his. When Martha and Mary sent Jesus a message that their brother Lazarus was ill, Jesus remained where he was for two days until Lazarus had died. It confused the apostles and likewise confused Martha and Mary. When Jesus finally arrived, Martha ran out to greet him and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Mary later came, she used the exact same words. They had faith in Jesus that he could have healed their sick brother, just like he had healed so many others. But Martha's hope wasn't yet extinguished. She said to Jesus, But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. It was now the fourth day, and Jews, based on different passages in the Old Testament, believed that a person's soul hovered around the body for three days after death. But by the fourth day, the person had passed the place of no return. Martha, however, was not intimidated. Whatever you ask of God, she said, God will give you. That led to one of the most fascinating dialogues in the meaning of faith we have in the gospel. Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise. And Martha replied immediately with stunning words. I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. She, together with Lazarus and Mary, had probably asked Jesus during one of his visits to their house to reveal to them what would happen to us after death and had learned from Jesus how he would destroy death and restore life. She hadn't forgotten the lesson about the general resurrection. But that's not what she was requesting. And that's not what Jesus was himself immediately planning to do. Jesus was going to fulfill what he had prophesied through Ezekiel, which we will hear in the first reading on Sunday. I will open your graves and have you rise from them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Jesus told her that ultimately the resurrection is not so much a concept or state or event, but a relationship. I am, he told her, the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. To be risen from the dead, to be fully alive, means to be in a living, loving friendship with Jesus. If one lives and dies in such a friendship with Jesus, he affirms, then death is nothing other than a change of address. As the person continues in relationship with him who is the life and who came to give us life to the full. After he had affirmed this, Jesus looked Martha right in the eyes and asked, Do you believe this? Jesus asked us the same question. For us to look at the resurrection and life not as concepts, but as a personal relationship, requires looking at Jesus not as an historical figure, but as a living, acting, breathing, loving Savior, present right now, seeking to raise us to experience life to the full. Martha didn't reply merely, yes, Lord. She presented the grounds of faith. She said, yes, Lord, I have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. Because of her living faith in Jesus, because of her trust in him, she committed herself to believing anything he would say, even if it seemed hard or even impossible to believe. Because of her faith, Mar Martha recognized that resurrection and life was standing before her. Because of her faith, she would be raised from the dead by her faithful relationship with Jesus, even before her brother Lazarus would be liberated from the tomb. Jesus wants us to have that same type of resurrection now. Before leaving for Bethany, Jesus had said to his disciples, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you may believe. Jesus worked the miracle of raising Lazarus from the tomb on the fourth day the way he did, so that we might believe, so that we might grow in faith, trusting in his words, even and especially when they're most challenging. Jesus had told the disciples prior to the journey, this illness is not to end in death, but is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
He was communicating that even illnesses, even death, can work for God's glory and work out for the good for those who love God. Jesus asks us, do you believe this? And wants us to place our trust in him and in his promises. We know that while Lazarus' resurrection was a resurrection backward, a resuscitation to an earthly life from which he would have to die again, Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection in which he hopes we will share, which he prophesied in action by working this miracle, will be a resurrection forward to a completely new state of life from which we'll never die again. In raising Lazarus, Jesus manifested both his power and his desire to do this. As we enter more deeply into Lent, Jesus wants us to grow in faith in him who is the resurrection and life. Confident if we die in him, we will live, and no one who lives and believes in him will ever die. How do we in this life encounter and befriend Jesus, as Martha, Mary, and Lazarus did? How do we experience the resurrection and life in the present that he wants to give us? We do so through prayer, that heart-to-heart conversation with him who listens, speaks, and comes to abide in us. We do so through the sacraments and our hunger for them. We do so through charity, which the love with which he loves us overflows into love for others. Jesus provides the means, and we're called to seize them. And Jesus provides those means because he loves us and wants us to enter into communion with him, who is the resurrection and life, so that we might have life to the full now and forever. Just as much as St. John tells us that Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus, And the crowd, seeing him weeping at the tomb, said, look at how much he loved him. So Jesus loves us, just as personally and just as much. It's obvious that Jesus, from dozens of miles away, could have cured Lazarus and even brought him back to life. After all, he had already worked several miracles from a distance. By going up to work the miracle in person when the Pharisees had put a contract out on his head, however, Jesus was showing everyone that helping Lazarus was worth his life. In a similar way, God could have come up with another way to save us without Jesus leaving heaven, without his taking on our flesh, without his going up to Calvary and being mastered on a cross. But he likewise wanted to show us we were worth saving. The greatest source of our human dignity is that Jesus accounted our lives more valuable than his own and was willing to take our place on death row to give his life for ours. If we could listen to the angels seeing this love that Jesus has for each of us, we would hear them say on Sunday, look at how much he loved you and me. And in this most consequential conversation, Jesus asks us, do you believe this? And if we say yes, then he says, put your faith in me now. Come out of your tomb and live in friendship with me in this world so that that friendship, that resurrection, and that life will continue forever. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 